0: coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat.
1: I then got offered this role at Richmond as a 24-year-old. And Richmond were on the bottom of the ladder and they were financially in a lot of trouble. And it was only about 10 years after that had a, like their, their greatest ever generation. They'd, the mighty had fallen, really. And I remember ringing my dad up and I said to him, look, I don't think it's a very good job. And he said, if it was a very good job, they wouldn't be asking you. And he was, he was so right. And it wasn't like a lack of belief in that. But it was basically saying that if it was a first choice job, there would have been plenty of other people before they take the 24 year old. Well, my name's Cameron Schwab, I'm from Australia i spent a lifetime in the great game of Australian football. This is my episode on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. And you've gone pretty deep in this episode, so I hope you enjoy it.
2: Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings.
3: Today we spoke with Cameron Schwab, CEO for 25 years in the AFL, leadership mentor and founder of Design CEO. Cameron had the most impressive studio we've seen, a fireplace, AFL memorabilia and a classy ambiance. It really gave an inside peek into the world of Cameron, class and quality personified. Cameron, an artist, storyteller, and writer, has been a CEO for 25 years, with experience with Melbourne Football Club, Richmond, and Fremantle Dockers, as well as also leading the AFL as CEO. His company, Design CEO, a leadership and strategy business, focuses on helping leaders navigate the hardships and ambiguity of modern leadership. Cameron, a graduate of Harvard Business School, today spoke about being a leader, rather than doing what it was like holding the role of CEO at the age of 24, the youngest to hold this position in AFL history. He proclaims to never forget how hard it is, the travails of a leader, and Cameron opened up for us, displaying remarkable vulnerability, unpacking the lessons of being a father to a trans child, broken families, and having had mental health challenges himself. He spoke about how hard some things are, and how the hard moments define us, his leadership equation, what he looks for in people, aptitude, and why being in your element is massively important.
2: Cameron Schwab, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Really looking forward to having a conversation with you. We'd like right. to nearly start with the words we read about never forgetting how hard it is. and It resonated a lot with the two of us there when we were looking up your, your bio and your background and the work you've done. How hard has your journey been to now?
1: I think all of our journeys feel hard when you're experiencing them. You know, if you wake up in the morning and your first thoughts, fuck, I think that generally means it's pretty hard. You know, that's, <laughs> is, that, is that okay? Sure. You know, the, uh, I don't think you've actually led unless you've had that experience. You know, re- really, if nothing else, leadership is most required when, Things are complex, ambiguous, when there's conflict involved. If not for those times, we probably don't need leadership because in the end we sort it out by consensus or some other means or the answer is obvious enough for us to take whatever steps it is to find it really. You know, I often say it's the hard days that define you because they're, they're the days that your leadership's going to be tested but you're also going to unveil parts of yourself which you mightn't have even known. That you had, but the situations going to then demand them of you, and I think, I think that's the same. And in, in, in my role was as a, a CEO in elite sport in the Australian Football League, which I got to do for a, for a long time. But I, I think of that as much as a as a parent as well. You know, those I've got I've got a transgender daughter, so that even you know, from that perspective, recognizing or waking up and knowing that you're not sure how to parent your child anymore they're all parts of that notion of they're the hard days and, and generally they're the days also you make yourself for whatever reason whatever process you put yourself through that you make yourself more accessible to to the learning that your situation may require of you as well I think it, I think it's something about that That you find out more about you you find out more about those around you you find out who's with you who's against you all of those all those sorts of things uh, are, the, are the hard days and yeah, and I got sacked a couple of times from my roles. And I think, you yeah. know, as, as much as I like to think about the positive parts of my career, there's there, no doubt they were the days where I probably wasn't the person I thought I was. And, you know, I, I defined myself by what I did rather than who I was in, in many ways. So I had to find out a little bit more about myself in that sense.
0: We really enjoyed and we'd love you to share, if possible, the metaphor you use for leadership about a swan and also. Yeah. Where did that come from? Where did, where did that, the origins of that?
1: Well, it came from a, a, a man who's pretty familiar to your part of the world. He's actually a Yorkshireman, but he spent a lot of time in Ireland. His, his name's David White. And uh, W-H-Y-T, it's quite, he's a beautiful writer and he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a poet, and, uh, but he actually does a lot of work in corporate areas. And he, by, by training, he was actually an oceanographer. He tells a story how he, was, he grew up. Um, with a, a looking at his black and white television, and Jacques Cousteau's boat sailed across his black and white screen, and he decided that's what he wanted to be in life, and, and he got to do that sail the Galapagos and, and dive the Galapagos and all that type of thing. And I, I related to that because I remember seeing you know, a black and white image of, of Australian football on our little little television at home with the rabbit ears, and you know you had to try and tune it in to whatever station you could actually get just to watch the game. Mm-hmm. and decided that that's what i wanted to be i wanted to somehow in life be someone who could, could live that part and so i related to that story when i heard it and then and then he he uses the metaphor of the swan as in when you see the swan on the water or you see the swan in the air the, the swan looks beautiful it looks stunning it's a magnificent bird but that that's when it's in its element and, but when it's on land and when it's you know it's it looks awkward it looks angry it looks aggressive. And, it's almost like it's got its legs tied together. Well, that's where it spends most of its life. It, it, it's spending most of its life in a place where it looks like it's in in struggle, if you like. But when we get to, we, we see the glory of it when it's on the air and in the water, and that's when it's in its element. And, and from time to time, we're going to all find our, our element, whatever that might be. But we're going to spend a lot of time not in our element. And and it's really the struggle, if you like, where the learning happens, which then gives you the beauty and the experience of those often very fleeting moments where, and and often they're only moments known to you, you know, and and I can remember almost an observer in in my own world where you'd be, something would be happening in the club or something would be happening around you, where you go, "I, I know that I played a very big role in this, but only you know the role that you actually played in it. And to actually, to, to beat your chest or to, to, to say, hang on a second, this is all because of me, is clearly not what that situation requires of you. And, and, and it can be, you're almost driving home knowing that you're the person, but no one knows you're the person. You know, that, that's often what it, what it felt like. But they were the, they were the days when you are in your element and they felt wonderful.
2: Building on to a quote, that we've taken from your book of David White, When Your Eyes Are Tired, The Word Looks Tired Also. And you've touched on you're in your element, you know, why you're doing what you do. You were a chief exec at the age of 24 years of age. Okay, so pretty young, pretty young, right? Not many have that role at that age. How did you
1: know you were in your element then? Well, I probably didn't. The interesting thing about that is at 24, you still working yourself out very much. And I, and I was that. I grew up in an environment where I was around the game a lot. So my, my father was was a, a very high profile person in the sport. So there's no doubt that that gave me some advantage, both in a a nurture sense, as in the the stuff I grew up with, uh, but also my my profile was probably as the son of a well known person. Uh, it was enhanced by that as well. And so it, I. I there, there was a wonderful show every Sunday, and I think most countries have a version of this. But it was just called World of Sport on a, on a Sunday afternoon. And there was a wonderful Australian footballer by the name of Kevin Sheedy, who played for the club that I supported, Richmond. And he then went on and coached Essendon, another famous club here. And he coached them for twenty-seven years in a row, which is an extraordinary thing. And he coached them to, to four premierships, four championships during that period. And they were generally thereabouts for much of that 27 years But he was still playing at this stage and he was on he was on the program and he spoke in a way which was different to even players mainly spoke in that era and I remember the the commentators at that time said oh Kevin Sheedy is a student of the game he's a, he's a student of the game and I, and I really didn't know what that meant I was only about 10 or 11 myself but I thought that's what I want to be I want to be a student of the game uh, I had really no concept that it would Take me into a career in the sport, but I thought if there's this thing I want to be a student of, it, it's a student of the game of Australian football because I, I just had fallen I fell in love with the game before I fell in love with anything else in my life. Maybe, maybe Batman probably was <laughs> my, just the only other thing yeah, at the time, and and so that was really and 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 so and then I had access to the people who were the game at that era, including my father and who who would he was the he was running the Richmond Football Club at that time and there's a famous coach who would come around by the name of Tom Hafey and he'd come around to our house and they'd talk about the game and and I'd be watching I'd be watching the game, I would be listening to him speak and they'd be talking about the game, but not like they did on World of Sport because they they'd be talking about the game as in who failed, who played poorly, you know, who needs to, who needs to improve, who won't make it, who will make it, all of those sorts of things. And I'm hanging off every single word, not saying anything. So even though I was was 24, probably my access and my understanding of the sport was no doubt enhanced by that that circumstance. But I was 24 in all the other ways that you are 24. You know, I I really hadn't in any way decided or defined or understood myself well enough to realise how I wanted to lead. So so I, I almost became some sort of Frankenstein monster of all the other versions of leaders that i'd come across my time and it took me a long while for the penny to drop to actually work out that to lead with any and the term is authenticity but that certainly wasn't used at that time But to be to to lead in 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 any way which is consistent even at least consistent is i had to learn to lead in a way which is a reflection of who i was and and i got to learn those lessons relatively early in the piece because I, i I struggled. And the interesting thing was people will always ask you, were you ready? You know, were you ready for? Well, the answer clearly is that I wasn't. As I've gone through life, I've worked out that you're never ready. You know, you're never ready for whatever. And my father at the time was, he was then worked at the Australian Football League. So he went from a club-based administrator into the competition-based administrator, and he was very influential. I then got offered this role at Richmond and as a 24-year-old. And, and Richmond were on the bottom of the ladder and they were financially in a lot of trouble. And, and it was only about 10 years after they'd had a, like their, their greatest ever generation. They'd, the mighty had fallen, really. And I'm remembering my dad up and I said to him, look, I don't think it's a very good job. And he said, if it was a very good job, they wouldn't be asking you. He said, that was <laughs> that was his response, you know. And, and he, was, he was so right. It wasn't like a lack of belief in me. But it was basically saying that, if it was a first-choice job, there would have been plenty of other people before they'd take the 24-year-old guy. But that's often where the opportunity then sits. Like most coaching jobs, for instance, they're not very good jobs. They've become available because something's happened, someone's failed, the system's failed, the person's failed. And one of the important reflections coming into those sorts of roles where there has been failure is to try and establish why it's actually failed. You know, it, was, it a, was it the person who'd been before you, were they so poor that they'd lost their job or was it something else going on in that organisation? Because you are going to walk into that same thing in most cases. And I, I, and I was probably so naive to all of that at the time that it didn't really worry me. But, gee, I found out quickly, you know, I worked it out quickly. And, and even though I knew that I was underdone and there were certainly days where... Uh, I wasn't prepared for what was coming my way because I had no reason to be prepared because I was young. I, I never doubted that I wasn't the right person for the role, and, and I, I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. But I just always felt that I was still the best person for the job, and and I managed to do it for six or seven years. and um, And we we turned it around. We didn't win a premiership, but we were able to at least be competitive. and The business model changed, and. It was an unbelievable lesson in life. And so I basically had my life job. because so I grew up as a Richmond supporter. I was then the CEO of that club at 24. And then by the time I'm 30, I'm you know, I'm looking for whatever's next. So I had my life job really early in the place.
0: I'm just thinking too, we're kind of looking back in hindsight at, at the role for six years. And sometimes things can become a little bit blurred. When we're looking into the day-to-day, then them hard moments where you wake up and you say fuck I don't know what I'm doing here this is this is difficult if it's a case of I'm, I'm struggling with that in my mind a younger Cameron what was your approach to finding the courage on them days to go into the club and show leadership or to take on the hard tasks that you maybe might be doubting yourself on a, on a smaller basis in the in the micro
1: yeah so I think you're in doubt most of the time that would be so leadership in many ways, it's not what's happening inside you. It's not what's happening around you. It's how you show up. So, so you better become very good at what's happening inside you. You better be very good at dealing with what's happening around you because people expect you to show up, you know, and, and not show up as probably my inclination was to get on my metaphoric white horse and come in as the person with all the answers. But clearly, as a young CEO, you don't have the answers. And, and even as – so my, my first response was that – and I think it was out of fear a little bit. I, I, I had this embedded fear that people wouldn't see me as being tough enough because I, I was young and I looked young as well. I, I was a, actually a late developer in life. I was, you know, I look at the photos of me as the CEO and I look like I'm in a boy band, you know. <laughs> I I've been like in a, a new romantic boy band or something like that at the time. But I didn't puberty till I was about 16 or 17. I was a late developer and... And so I'm, I'm a gawky, pondexed kid, really, in lots of, ways. Um, and, but I, I, I sort of And I didn't really feel that, but i look at it now. So part of me was actually saying, well, I have to be seen as having the answers, but clearly I didn't have the answers. My role as a leader is to actually, you know, to develop or create an environment. And, and there's generally, in my experience, sort of three scenarios that we have to... To deal with the first one is are we just if if we as I say are you just passing over information are you just explaining something and a fair bit of it is that this is what explaining what we're doing because you're not expecting anyone to you're not wanting or expecting any feedback on those sorts of issues then you've got the second dimension which is the more creative you know innovative what's the strategy going to look like what's the plan going to look like what's the way forward here how do we build the team that's a much more. You know, we, we, that's a different environment that you're seeking to create in those moments. But the, and and I, I found one and two to be relatively okay because I, I was naturally okay at the, some of the communication side of it. I, I found that relatively easy. The third one was the hard one is that's when you're dealing with tough decisions and conflict and people are turning on each other and they're turning on you. And as the CEO, you're often the last to know in those situations because you know, no one tells their CEO their baby's ugly. You know, it's just one of those getting honesty is really hard. And I look at those moments and think they're the ones where, where, I, where I let my ego kick in, um, I got angry, I'm, I'm, I probably was hyper-competitive because I thought that's how you had to be. Um, I, I wasn't as brave as I should have been. The, and I even I wasn't as kind as I should have been in, in some way. No, and, and I think you almost got to go through those things to recognise this thing's going to draw on parts of you which you won't necessarily reflect positively on. Uh, but you almost have to go through that thing to understand that. And that's what it did, really.
2: Having gone through it, you then came up with your understanding as to what leadership is and you kind of even had a formula for it in and around bringing in some of those words or touching on like emotional intelligence, would you nearly unpack? We we obviously understand what it is, but maybe for the people that don't are listening, how you came to shaping that formula and kind of why you felt those ingredients in it are so important for you.
1: Yeah, There's a term which um, James Clears talked about this in his book, Atomic Habits, that is that we don't rise to the level of our, goals or our ambition, we fall to the level of our system. I, I look at most environments, but particularly sport, as being a mix of mechanics and dynamics. You know, what, what are the mechanics that we need to get right, the systems that we need to get right? here, And then the dynamics is then the interrelationships and how people work well together. And and, and even when it comes to conflict, can you know, and my experience also is that even the strongest cultures, there's a lot of conflict embedded in. In fact, they become very good at conflict. That's actually part of it. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons they do that is that they they keep con they make it task of conflict, not relationship conflict. We don't allow task conflict to, to play into relationship conflict. So even that process of being quite systematic started to play out for me. So so even regularly and, and if I was to coach one thing as a leader, it would be as simple as all of this. And very few people do it. So this is like the secret sauce of this is this is the, the thing that took me 30 years to work out, and I now teach it. So I teach the system that I wished I would had when I was going through it, but I had to go through that system to have it. So it always builds off questions, and questions regularly asking yourself, and the questions you ask yourself is basically to establish a, a practice of reflection for yourself. And it, it can be simple. I've got, I've got three questions I think you should ask all the time. The first one is, what does this role expect of me? But like, as, as it sits now, so even as you guys sit there, what does this role expect of you? You know, even when it comes to your preparation, you know, when it, when it comes to who does what at this time, okay, how, do you, how do you present with humility, how do you present with decency, how do you actually be responsible, what, whatever the thing will actually ask of you at those times. And so I would, I'd say I'd set myself three hours every three months to answer that question because it changed. Every three months or so seems to be a period enough for it to change. Because the role is different in three months' time because the the future's unknowable. One one thing we've learned through COVID is just how unknowable our future actually is. So what does this role expect of me? And then the second question is what do I expect of the role? And I I wasn't very good at that. And so the question you asked before about my capacity to respond to situations, it was normally just try harder, work harder, do more. Well, the one thing I worked at is do more is just a really... That's a, that's, that, that is just a, a uh, recipe for disaster. But you can do different. So it's not about doing more. It's about doing different. Whereas my response wasn't to do different. It was to do more. And, and that came at a, at, a, at a personal cost. You know, as in I was probably, when I was fatiguing myself and coming back to the David White idea of if your eyes, I didn't want really to answer that, if your eyes are tired, well, that's what you're doing. You're just fatiguing yourself out. And that's, not, that's just not bad for you. That's bad for everyone else. That's bad for everyone else. So what, does, what do I expect of the role? And, 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 and I wasn't demanding enough of the organisation as it related to me because it needs to work both ways. And so if, if the role is costing you your mental health, well, the, the, that's up to you to work that through. And hopefully you're in an organisation which is, is uh, responsive and empathetic to that. But I've got to say, that wasn't happening much in the 1990s and 2000s. There wasn't a lot of empathy for those things. Because the third question you ask yourself is, what do I expect of myself? Well, you expected yourself to actually survive this thing in, in a positive way. And, and I say that in all bluntness, because I, I got diagnosed with clinical depression when I was in my 30s. And it's probably hardly surprising, given what I'd actually I put myself through at that time. But I kept it as my secret for the next 20 years. I didn't tell anyone. The only person who knew was my wife. And... And I was in like a process of therapy and all that for the best part. And so no one talked about depression in those days. And so if I answer those questions, if I was good at answering those three questions, I would have probably done some things differently to not allow myself to get into those into spaces. Those so the three questions are simply, what do I expect of the role? What does the role expect of me? What do I expect of the role? What do I expect of myself? And that's just, so that's a systematic process. But what it's actually doing, it's embedding a practice of reflection in your life. And then when it came into even the more, say, I was in a situation of conflict or I was dealing with a difficult issue, I would then actually take the time. I'd just say, I'd write down, and people didn't know what you were writing down. They thought you just notes in a meeting. I'd go, what does this, what does this situation expect of me? And then I'd write down four words, calm, brave, humble, kind. Calm, brave, humble, kind. So what would a humble leader do now? What would a kind leader do now? What would a brave leader do do now, what would a calm way to do now? And people think you're just writing notes, but you just actually all you're doing is you're giving yourself the space and the pause, like like any form of elite sport. The great athletes pause, don't they? They have they, got that moment to actually just stop for a second. In you know, in our game, it's you know when a player's having a shot for goal, when a, you can see when a penalty kick in, you know, in, in soccer that that capacity to pause is one of the most powerful things. Well, we have to learn to do that. In conflict situations, even when you're having an argument with your partner or something like that, you just sometimes you just go, "Oh yeah, you need to, this is crazy shit," you know. We, we just, let's just stop for a second. Let's just take a break. You know, well, no, this is this is this is, not, this is not enough to get ourselves into this place. You know, but the same thing applies. I think in the leadership role, if you can't pause, if you if you can't answer those questions, well, the chances are you're almost dishonouring the role. I
0: Thinking about that creation of the ability to be able to pause and to respond appropriately or effectively or even as you would like. You mentioned before, I think, that journaling became a tool that you could use to better understand yourself and maybe to better respond with them with them moments of adversity or difficult um, challenges you face. What's your process for journaling? Why has it been so important to you?
1: I think, well, I think the main thing is it's a... It's a it, it is a structured practice of reflection and you can make it as structured as you like. You know, for some people, it's just stream of conscious writing. This is what, for some people, it's idea development. Uh, for some people, it's answering questions. For some people, it's gratitude. You know, for some people, it's empathy. I think, I think there's different, I've tried all different versions. I've actually got one at the moment I'm using, which is for the, the daily storage. Yeah. yeah, Ryan. yeah. So I'm, I'm working I'm on working it. And I, I can't say I've done everyone, but I've probably done two out of three, and they are interesting questions. Um, and so it becomes, for me, a it, when It's it, I do have a practice of meditation as well. One of the most important things that leaders have to do, but I think anyone has to do in many ways, is we have to be good at making sense of things. How, how do you become a great sense maker? You know, particularly when there's confusion around you and, and you're confused yourself. And, and by writing, I find... It's a capacity to often connect disparate pieces of thinking that are sort of running around in your head somewhere. The minute you go to write, write it, you go, often I say, no, I've been here before. It, 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 it feels like a different situation, but it's not as different as what I'm making it out. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, I have been in a situation where I've had to deal with an angry or a highly political situation, I found them the most difficult circumstances where where it wasn't it wasn't merit- based anymore. If, does that make sense? It was more about people's people wanting to hold power over you hmm. rather than do things which we agree are in the best interest of the organization. One of the most challenging issues that I found over time was when you realise the enemy is wearing the same colours as you are and, you know, where it's someone inside your own organisation, that's not unusual by the way because not necessarily because people are bad people, they just don't agree with how you're going about it and they know the only way of getting their way is to undermine your way and there's a lot of selfishness in that, but that's just human nature coming into play. And so the journaling for me would be building clarity around thinking so even in, even in if I've got an important meeting, if I just turn up to that meeting thinking I can wing it, where I haven't actually almost, no different to a, a player turning up at a game and they haven't visualised, if you like. So I'm basically visualising the meeting. I, I, I would, as, even in that situation as a journalist, I'd say, well, I try and picture the seat I'm going to be sitting in, the, the room, most of the time you've been in the room before, the room I'm going to be in the personalities of the people in the room, how they're likely to respond. And almost inevitably out of the journaling process, I'd make up my mind to almost say nothing for, for, for long periods of time because i have made up my mind already what I think the critical issues we need to sort out are. Whereas if I go into the room underprepared for that, I'm, I'm talking the whole time because I'm trying to work stuff out. And that's... That's rarely going to create the scenario. So journaling has a practical application there. I found it very important from uh, dealing with the, the depression. That was a critical part because I'd often write down, I'm thinking this way, but I know this is my depression talking. It's not me talking. And that almost created a second personality. For It almost ex- externalised the, the mood. i I always have music playing. I always have like headphones, music. I've got a, I've got a, a playlist called mood changes when I'm feeling fucked. And, and so it's just music, which I know makes me feel better. So it's all those things to get in, just to put yourself into a good, healthy place. And, and it just seems to me that if you spend 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, I try to do at least 30. It, it's, no doubt, it's no different going for, a, I'm, I'm a cyclist, going for a ride in the morning, doing some journey. You, you've sort of half won the day already in some ways you know you you, you've got you know using it I'm a cricket from a cricket person you've you've got runs on the board already you know that's the the journaling i think can be whatever you need it to be so i I practice a little. i do like a, a to ask myself questions and answer questions and they've got to be what questions or how questions you know like what is this situation how will we know how do i make it happen
0: yeah i love that very helpful thanks just like to
2: dig into the recruitment piece for a minute, Cameron, and you had mentioned how aptitude for you is really, really important. Yeah. What are you teaching yourself now? What's the big thing that's sparking your curiosity or you're digging into?
1: It's a funny thing that, um, and this is only a recent revelation for me, is that most people in life have some sort of to-do list. Do you guys have like a to-do list of the? Yeah. That you have started with some sort of to-do list? How often have you done something which isn't on your to-do list then put it on your to-do list and tick it off? Mm, sort of rarely. The <laughs> I've got to admit it. <laughs> <But that's not. laughs> no, I think, might, because well, a sense of progress is important. So most people have some form of to-do list, if you like. Yeah. I, I'd say, okay, well, what's your to-do list? What's its, what's its context? Yeah. Well, I'd like to think its context is something bigger, like a to-be list, if you like, what do you want to be, you know, your to-do and your to-be Okay, the okay, list. Yeah, okay,
2: cool. What, so, what's actually in the power list? Shout to Andy Frizzella. Um, it's five <laughs> critical tasks to make To yeah. he would say, you've won the day. So, for me, it's the things that really move the needle, and it can be professional or personal. So, it could be for family as well, or even for myself, like if I was cycling, as an example. So, five things, yeah. and there's a journaling piece as well, and the book I'm reading.
1: All right, cool. That's that's, great. that's, that's Every
2: day, that's what I do, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's taking the to-do list into a deeper place. So because a lot of people, their to-do list is almost their inbox, which is really just mm-hmm. your to-do list is now being defined by people who just happen to have your email address in, in, in many ways. And, and because there's a, you know, the, 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 the act of getting it done, there's no doubt there's some sort of dopamine hit or I'm not, I'm not sure what mm-hmm. chemistry is. So one of the things which I'd start saying, what is your to-be list, which is probably more what you're saying there, I want to be this, I want to be a fitter person. I want to be a, I've got sort of five domains. I go, I want to do good work. I want to enjoy and look after myself. I want to be present with my family and friends. I want to create a, I want a creative space. How do I create a space? And I want to stay organised. They're my sort of five domains, if you like. So that, that become a bit of a context even from a journal point of view and intentions with it. So what I think links your to-do list and your to-be list is what I call your to-know list. Your to-know list, which is your learning list. So what do I want to learn about? And I found that my my to know list hasn't changed since I was wanted to be a student of the game. It hasn't changed at all. I still want to go deep into like at the moment. It's it originally was just the game itself. How do you become good at the game? Um, and but there's there's a finite aspect to that. Into unless you're coaching the team, you can go as far as you want to go in terms of that stuff. But then it became more about performance, and then the role of leadership as it relates to performance. Because I don't think you can ever outperform your leadership. I don't think that's that's possible. So my to-know list, as in the stuff I love reading about and speaking about and sorting myself through, hasn't changed, even though my expression of that has. It used, my, used to, my expression of it was previously was as a CEO of of, an, of AFL clubs, which I got to do for 25 years, whereas now I teach leadership to CEOs and their teams. So it's a different form of that. but The, the, fun, the stuff which still drives me. Is, is still the same. And so when I talk to aptitude, I talk about mindset, about your, your ability to teach yourself things, your, your growth mindset. So even as part of all of this, I've had to work out how I now express my to-know list in a way where I can make a living from it. So I've created a business design CEO. I'd never, I'd never had to do that before, you know. I went back to art school. I studied fine art in my 50s. So I went to art school and I, and I taught myself things as, as part of that. I had a conversation with someone once who, when I asked, because the, the first question I ask in job interviews is, "Have you ever taught yourself anything?" You know, have you ever taught yourself anything? Almost the same question as you just asked the person there. Have you ever taught yourself anything? And someone I knew taught themselves how to make guitars, yeah, you know, as an electric guitar, on YouTube. And they said, "Actually, I made a guitar out of our old family. We I inherited our when my parents passed away. I'm an only child. I inherited." our family home it was just a little suburban home and we decided to rebuild on the block but i made a guitar out of the the wood from our family home you know wow and this you can imagine wow. this is a great story it? it's you know isn't made cool. a good story and and so and and he brought his guitar. it was like a it looked like a bruce springsteen butter blonde telecaster he made it all like that the wood was quite rough on it. And I said, Oh, yeah, it's a bit, and I said and he could tell I thought it was a bit rough. He said, I deliberately kept it rough because I know I could have easily sanded it back, but it wouldn't have been our house if I'd done it yeah. that way, because it was a rough house, you know. is that a cool story? So you actually start to hear things from people and their eyes light up when they tell the story. So uh, an example being having a transgender child, I, I didn't know how to parent my kid anymore. So I went deep into all of that. I, I now actually get asked to speak at pride events, and you know, you know, they the, I, I was at an event, you know, only, only a few weeks ago, where they raised the rainbow flag at a, at a football club in Dalesford. The area I'm from has a very strong you know, LGBTQI community. It's actually that's part of its heritage. Mainly originally, it's a bit of a place where people escaped, but it's now it's really it's really embraced that part of its it's part of its, its heritage and I, they were raising a flag at, at the game and it was this beautiful speech and ceremony as a game of football was happening behind me you know with all the classic football sounds you know knacker 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 kicking swearing but that was just basic country football and you you could hear the wheezing and the, the leather of the ball on them all those classic football sounds could be any ground in the whole of australia so I've got my two worlds have come together here, you know, the raising of the flag and the footy game in the background. Well, they're two worlds which no one would ever believe would have come together when I grew up, you know. And so my learning is now how do I parent my child, you know, and because our goal is to build a, you know, build a child for the path, not a path for the child because she's going a different path than I'd ever dreamed that she was going to go down. And, and so how, how do I how do I... How do I be a good dad, you know, in this situation, you know? Whereas all my dreams growing up, well, my not my dreams, my thoughts growing up was I've got a boy to play footy and I'll go and watch him play, I'll coach his team, I'll do it. well, none of that happened. None of that happened. And at 17 she made the choice, she was lucky and she's now leaving, you know. So these are all the things you then teach yourself. And you probably even my even my voice will change. You notice how people change when they're talking about something that has been so important to them. And that's that idea of aptitude, you know, have you ever taught yourself anything? And um, you get some great responses.
2: Cameron, my last one, and then I'll kick it to Kieran. Um, Frank Miller, does he have a rival? Because he, uh, you've mentioned Batman and you're quite an illustrator and you went back to art school. And for people that just just check out your work, Cameron, what does the, you mentioned the creative space as well. And obviously the storytelling that's coming through today. What is it about the what is it about the the drawing? Because those illustrations are are really cool, and obviously they complement your your writing, and probably when you're talking. What is it about that that you're enjoying?
1: When I was a young fellow, my grandfather, my my mum's dad, who we called Puppy, taught me how to, um, how to draw. It was on butcher paper, you know, the books, big sheets of butcher paper. I don't know if you can remember those. They used to wrap your stuff up, I and mean, you probably don't use it anymore. But, but then, I and mean, he, he was a tradie, so he had the big fat. Tradesmen pencils you know they used to draw and taught me how to draw horses and and because i was obsessed with batman and superman and i was more a dc person than a marvel person mm-hmm. 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 yeah dc here as
0: DC.
2: well good man.
1: forget marvel
0: <laughs> we're rare we're a rare breed
1: <laughs> we are they were, made, they were big in the day so um but it was batman really and and notice noticed my drawings fairly comic-like and, and so it's very much in and then i started drawing footballers and so i was Probably the first thing, and, and you get positive reinforcement when you're growing. When I, when I was a kid, and I could draw okay, you got known as the kid who can draw a bit. So you, you're almost encouraged in in some ways. And and so when I was going through school, there was a thought that I might, yeah, you know, probably a strong thought. At least for a period of my life, I'd study fine art, and and that didn't happen. And and it didn't happen because I actually didn't do well in Year Twelve in art. I I I had a I had a a tough couple of years. My parents got divorced when I was when I was um, in my final couple of years at school, and I just lost my way, and and it was just a pretty traumatic period. And and so I didn't do as well as I thought I would do. And and then just an opportunity opened up. It was actually the Melbourne Football Club who invented the game of Australian football, actually in 1858. So it's a it's a wonderful old footy club. They just won the premiership their first in 57 years last year, and. It was a wonderful opportunity i was only 18 so i did that and then my career emerged and six years later as a ceo so that's how, how it played out so the drawing for me it's never been an escape but people often ask that because i do put a bit of an expectation on myself you know it's not i'm i'm doing it with the view that i want to do it in a way which is an, ex, an expression so there's this there's, there's, there's two forms of art that i go with. one one is almost an illustrative part of it where I, I see an image and i just want to do my interpretation of that image, and then there's other drawings which there's, there's, and there's a story in it in some shape or form, but the story is not my story. The story is for whoever is looking at the artwork to create their own story from, you know, and, and, and studying fine art was interesting because I, I had a lecturer who came to me at one stage because I, I was like a, I'm studying first year uni and I'm 50 and... And That was after I left as a C, so I'd done 25 years of CEO and then I studied fine art, which is a big step, like I would say, uh, at the time. And I'm a little close, but I'm almost like a tribal elder in all the with all these young people, you know, they're mainly kids straight out of school. And there's first year university students, and then there's first year fine art university students, and another dimension again, you know, in terms of so I got on really well with the lecturers. And one of the lecturers came to me about halfway through my first year. He said, you do art like a CEO. You, know, you, you, you do art. Like, it's like the ultimate put-down for an artist. You know? <laughs> and my realisation was that I didn't have enough courage in my art to allow the viewer to make up their own mind, that I, that I was doing art which was so obvious that it was, it was boring, it was uninteresting. And so I have to be in a different space to create that form of art, if you like, because there's, there's normally something deeply embedded coming out from me, and it might be, you know, it might be my, um, the very thing I just spoke about, that, you know, at 16 or 17, seeing your parents who you just assumed would love each other all their life actually hate each other, Yeah, it, that's actually not an easy thing, you know, a, a pubescent child to go through in, in its own way. And my father was my hero, which can probably sense in it, but also really close to my mum. So two people who loved us dearly but actually stopped loving each other is, is one of those, those challenges. So sometimes I'll, I'll try and reflect that. You know, and, and often it is, it is storytelling. I, 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 I do like going deep into, and all stories ever are, in your interpretation of what happened. But they're, not, they're not real. You know, they're just how you lived and how you remembered it. So even if I talk about that period of my life, whether it's through my art or through my writing, you know, I'll, I'll, I've got an older sister and, and she's three years older than me. So if she's a 13-year-old girl I'm a 10-year-old boy. well, they're very different recollections, you know. And, uh, and I'll go, this is what happened to you. I mean, it wasn't like that at all, you know. Her but it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's what it's left you with. And so art for me is... Is 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 sometimes just a, a fun um, interpretation of a of a of an image that I just like or I love or my interpretation of it. But, but the stuff I care about, I know it's going to bloody it's going to be it's going to suck the goodness out of me when I'm doing <laughs> it. I know that. And the same with some of the deeper writing. I, I can be writing and crying at the same time, and as I feel spaces you know, my dad died young and 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 he he got drunk one night and he got he got drugged by a prostitute and and he died and 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 uh, there's not one part of me which doesn't think about that a lot you know not the way he died but the fact he died because we still had you know 30 years of talking to do it, you know so so that i'll think i'll be i've created situations where we're having one more conversation or you know, where. And what would we talk about what, what, what would we chat about if we had the opportunity to, to wander into this room now and even our little virtual room because he, he was a wonderful storyteller and what would you want to talk about and i know he'd be so interested in you guys because he was so I mentioned before he was the person who sort of opened up island to australian football and i know it's pretty controversial over there and for all the reasons that it should be but. He 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 took he took those original tours over there with you know in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties and when those games were played way back in the day. Well that that was, his, that was his vision or partly his vision, other people obviously were involved in it. So he'd be sitting here so keen to be talking to you guys to find out whatever happened, what, what happened for the next three years, right? And I think about that because you should still be alive now and and, and so to sit down and, and to draw on those sorts of reflections, whether it's through my artwork or writing or conversations such as this, there's a wonderful creativity in that, and I hope that I, I haven't taken it down too deep a place. But it, it's for me, it's um, you build over time a preparedness to go there, and when you do, you go to deep. But it's not easy. I
0: appreciate you sharing and talking about the relationships and connecting with people and connecting with us today. It's been like going to a fountain of knowledge. We've sort of been taken, taken, taken. So we've one last question for you. Um, it's a question we ask everyone who comes on the show. It's what does high performance mean to you, Cameron?
1: I think it is operating in an environment, which is hard, but really hard, competing against people who are just as capable, if you know what I mean, and working just as hard, but working out, a way of which this group can do it better than whoever we're competing against. We're, we've found a way. We found a way which is unique to us. In finding a way which is unique to us, that makes us really predictable to each other, but really difficult to play against. Yeah, very unpredictable to play against. That we're so therefore we're probably we're probably playing in a way which has never been. So I'm talking more about high performance in the context of teams. Right? Where where each of the individuals have found a way to build connection. We're a mix of nerds and bloody mavericks. <laughs> We're a mix of snarly old scarred veterans and blokes playing their second game. We're a mix of, you know, private school kids and, you know, and you know, indigenous kids from Central Australia. All, that, that's what Popcorn is. We've found a way to make this group fucking good. <laughs> it's,
0: it's interesting. We heard that phrase for the first time, find a way off Mike Brown. A English rugby player, but two weeks ago, oh, right. yeah. In response yeah. to that question, and now you've you've touched on it and Serenity. added, yeah, oh, added wow. flavour to it.
1: It by South Park.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I think it is about finding a way, isn't it? It's um, if you if we all said okay, we're going to start something tomorrow, and if we're going to do something which is hard, yeah, you know, the, the chances are we're going to come into conflict at some point, and we're going to go home, we're going to shake our heads, we're going to behave badly at different times, we're going to have to hold each other, we're going to, have to pull each other. I've got, I've got this sort of mantra of never blame the player, never blame the player. And, and because ultimately as CEOs, as coaches, as performance people, we recruit them, we develop them, we put them out there, we do whatever we can. And yes, at different times, are going to disappoint, them, disappoint us, but it's not their fault. It's, you know, and we, we assume that they're going to, if they make a mistake, we're going to learn and grow. And, develop
2: from it. that's okay Cameron Traub thanks very much for coming on today everyone uh, have a look at design CEO I'm going to be looking at it a lot more personally and more to the game what leaders can learn from football Cameron that's an unbelievable resource thanks for giving sharing that with the world I sent it to my dad yesterday and he printed out all the pages <laughs> on his would.
1: printer to give to me on Friday. Send me, send me a text and I'll send you a couple of hard copies and then you can send me to your a hard copy of it. It's a, look, it's, it's downloadable on the website, designceo.com.au, Australian Australian websites. And it's got more to the game. And I'm actually doing the sort of the next edition now. But on, on my email list, I'm, I'm doing a thing at the moment. I'm up to number five or six, right? which is, I worked out this year, it was 40 years since I uh, started work. So it's, it's 40 lessons from 40 years. And so I'm up to number Six or seven. So that's just an email, which people can sign up for as well
0: at designco.com.au. Yeah, we'll share that as well on our newsletter and make sure everybody, because the value in it is huge. So appreciate that. Yeah.
1: Thank you, Cameron. Well, it's lovely to make it. And I uh, no, really appreciate you, know, you getting up in the morning and having a chat.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by How a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelled H A U O R A life.com. Please rate, review, and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen, others
1: make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.